Welcome to Know Your Risk Radio on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. Know Your Risk Radio is hosted by Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Know Your Risk Radio is brought to you by Bulwark Capital, helping families navigate the ever-changing and often volatile markets. Know Your Risk Radio starts now. Here's your host, Zach Abraham. And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for another of the most scintillating hours in finance radio. And uh, it is just after market close on Friday. So if you guys are listening, well, you are listening to it on (laughs) at least on the radio on Saturday and Sunday. Um, Nasty week, right? That uh, and we're just going to jump right into it, guys. Uh, Well, hold on a second. Couple notes. So. We're going to do another interview today that you're not going to want to miss. And, and the timing was perfect because we're going to be joined by Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital, a good friend of mine, good friend of the show. And, and the reason I have Brent on is a couple reasons. A, he's a very good guy. Uh, he is not into the pomp and circumstance. He is not arrogant. He is not full of himself. He is all about the work and, uh, we like workhorses. We don't like show horses, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, the other reason, and we talk about this a lot in the interview, the reason that Brent and I got connected in the first place is um, I, I came to what felt like a really almost stupid, controversial point of view um, between the years of really 2012 and 2014, 2015, and we talk about it in the interview, but <clears throat> with the government at that point doing, you know, record low, in, oh, pardon me, a little hiccup there, a little too excited over the day's action. Um, with the government doing quantitative easing and with suppressed interest rates, record low rates, uh, and then budget deficits coming out of the financial crisis, uh, I was just dead sure positive that we were going to see really nasty inflation, that commodities were going to go through the roof, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that worked beautifully until the end of 2011. Now, the saving grace for us is that it looked frothy, especially in gold markets is where we were focused. And um, at the height, and this is where I'll just tell you guys, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, Due to my experience navigating um, uh, commodity markets and kind of really growing up in that space, um, there's telltale signs you look for. And, and one of them, especially in the gold mining industry is there are kind of these defunct product or projects that kind of hang around and then kind of go away. And then you see them in a commodity bull market resurface again, right? With all kinds of problems in them. And the only reason they're getting financing is because everybody's got to get into gold, right? Or everybody's got to get into this. It's kind of like tech, right? It, it, there was kind of that similar setup with gold and silver coming out of the financial crisis as there was with tech for a lot of the last 10 years. Um, and when you see these properties starting to get refinanced again, it's a sign that things are getting frothy. Now, in our view at the time, at the end of 2011, um, you know, the government was not changing its standpoint. We were still running crazy deficits. Um, the economy still really was not bouncing back strong. You still had quantitative easing. You still had suppressed rates. You still had all these things that we thought were going to continue to drive things higher. But because of that froth, 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 really, we really pulled back the vast majority of our exposure, and we were just waiting for a better entry point to get in. Now, we didn't get rid of all of it, but it really didn't – we didn't – praise God. We didn't really take much of a hit because, like I said, we were just waiting for this opportunity to get back in, and it just never came. Um, and probably one of the, you know, I'll just say probably the two smartest, probably the two best investment decisions I've made over the last, you know, 10, 12, 13 years was not getting back into precious metals and not shorting Tesla. Um, (laughs) right. So again, risk management, it really does. it, It works. It's a real thing. Um, but watching it not come back, it really spun me for a loop. Because it really flew in the face of everything that I knew, quote unquote, knew to be true uh, about economics and about investing and about finance. You're sitting there watching our debt just climb every single year. The deficits are climbing. The Fed is buying up government bonds. And you're sitting there going, this should be driving inflation. And yet gold and gold miner stocks just continue to drop. And um, 
that was really, really frustrating and puzzling for me. And it really put, turned me down a path for about the next two and a half years of getting through the frustration and starting to dig and starting to exercise some humility and going, okay, what did I miss? Because that's one of the things, you know, you see people fighting it. And and again, I don't mean to pick on her, um, but it's just a really good example of a lack of risk management, right? Kathy Wood, the ARKK fund uh, closed down in 47 today. It's now down about what? 74% in the last 14 months. Um, Guys, you may think that she's going to be right eventually or whatever. I, I wouldn't hire her to manage a lemonade stand, and why not? Um, it's not because she can't pick winners, and I bet you there are several companies in her fund that will end up doing very well. Um, but risk management is a key part. For instance, if she had exercised risk management, and let's say she was down 35%, right? Think of how much more capital she would have on hand to buy these companies that she is so positive Right, Teladoc got whacked the other day for one of her top holdings, got whacked for 40%, 45%, something like that. She's saying it's the next, she's doubling down. She's saying she's buying more. She says it's the next Walmart, or excuse me, the next uh, Amazon. Um, <clears throat> good luck. But maybe she's right. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I really don't even understand how you can begin to draw parallels between an online essentially doctor zoom call, right? Cause that's kind of what it is. Zoom with the doctor on the other end of it. Um, that could be a decent business. Um, the problem with that business is there's zero barriers to entry, right? I mean, all you got to do is start up a company and give more of the revenue to the doctors and they'll come to your platform. Um, Amazon doesn't work that way at all. People are like, well, now it doesn't. Well, yeah, but everybody knows that business now, right? Everybody knows what Amazon did to get where it is. And so other people that are competing against her, for instance, you know, uh, Amazon's made some pushes in the medical industry. What would stop them from doing it? Anyway, my point is she could be right or she could be wrong. What, what it shows you, A, is that, you know, the, the trading, when you watch the way they trade, it is amateur hour at the Apollo. I mean, it's Keystone Cops. Um. The other thing you know for sure is that there is no risk management whatsoever. And risk management is a huge, huge part of this business, especially for retirement accounts, right? Um, And what you can see there is just a complete lack of risk management. It doesn't exist. And so the reason we manage risk is not because we're afraid of loss. It's because it, like I say all the time, It enhances our returns. So getting back to my point, if she is right, which I'm sure she will be about some of those stocks. I mean, there's some good companies in there. But if she's right, one of the reasons we manage risk is so we can buy more of them when they go down. Right? It's like us. We bought Roku earlier in the week. I've been wanting to buy Roku forever, but I had to wait for it to get down to a valuation that made sense. And all too often you see people treat stocks like a train leaving the station. And it takes time. It's not fun. It takes discipline. But when you see things trading at valuations that don't make any sense, you have to resist that urge because if you really believe in the investment, be patient. It'll come back to you. Roku topped out like around 400. We picked it up at like 81. Okay. Now it could still go down further. And that's why we started with a pretty small position. I think it made up a two and a half percent position in the value portfolio. We did the same thing with PayPal. We started buying PayPal. Well, we bought it once like around 180 and then we were going to, there was a resistance level at like 172, I think, and it broke that and then we sold it um, for a small loss. And then it got down into like the 120s, 115s, and we bought 1%, 1.5% portfolio weight. Then it got down to like 100. We bought another 1% and then bought another, you know, half to 1%, I want to say, uh, geez, right around 85, 86, somewhere like that. Um, again, PayPal is another business that I think is really good. Um, it, you know, if, if this carnage in tech land continues, um, you know, and I'm not advising you guys buy these, right? I, I, like I said, I, I think it's entirely likely that these companies continue to go down, but they're at a point now where I'm looking at them going, these are good businesses and they're evaluations that make sense to us. Uh, the other thing you got to remember, guys, is that we're hedged on the other side of it in, in an environment like this. So 
just like I've said before, don't listen to what I do and just go do it. Okay. Um, that can get you in trouble. Um, just, and it can get me in trouble too. <laughs> right. So we don't want to do that. I don't want you guys to lose money and I certainly don't want to get in trouble, but, um, <clears throat> these are the markets, you know, value portfolio. We took a little bit of a hit in the last two weeks. Uh, we're still, we're, you know, we were up 7% on the year. Um, now we're up about one and a half to 2% on the year. Uh, momentum portfolio is down five. I think our average portfolio is down right around one and a half, uh, on the year. But, but what are we doing? We're taking these opportunities, right? We're buying some of these companies, right? We're doing the same thing we were doing back in COVID, right? Letting them come back to us and buy it and buying them. Um, that's risk management guys. And, and we've been talking about this for a long time. I've been telling you that this doesn't look good. And today was very significant. And I'll tell you why this now is the worst month that the NASDAQ has had since the financial crisis. Okay. Uh, could it be drawing to a, could, could it, could the carnage be coming to an end? It could be. Um, and, and the other thing is valuations have come in, but there's some other troubling things, right? You've got Amazon announcing a, a, a freeze in hiring. Okay. They're a big employer. Okay. You're listening to Netflix is beginning to lay people off. Okay. When you see companies like this, that after a drawdown like this look really cheap, you got to be careful because if earnings start to come back in and earnings start to pull back and you look at earnings over the last year, they're at record highs. Okay. If earnings start to come back in, what looks cheap now can look uncheap in a hurry. All right. So, you know, this is, again, this is a market for risk management. I don't know what the, I've been, I've been hammering on the table for that. Um, you know, and if you do it properly, guys, our overall client is still somewhere between flat on the year overall, their entire portfolio, uh, and up, you know, one and a half percent right in there, somewhere, somewhere right in there. Um, our bond replacement strategies are obviously holding up. Well, bonds continue to get whacked. Here's another example, guys, right? Bonds go up when stocks go down. You got hit in the S&P today for 3.6. Dow was down almost 1,000 points. NASDAQ down 4.2%, and bonds were negative, okay, which takes them down like something like 15% on the year. I've been talking to you guys about this for six years. Not saying I know everything. I'm just saying these are obvious things. The other thing is the whole landscape, guys, has changed. Okay, you've got the DXY. Let's check it. The dollar index now, right? Everybody's talking about inflation. The dollar index is at 103.17. Okay, that's a 20-year high. It is now higher than it was at the COVID bottom or virtually right at the same level of the COVID bottom. Okay, but remember at the same time, commodity prices have soared. Right? That is just murder for emerging markets. That's murder for countries like Japan or Turkey whose currencies are dropping like a rock right? Then they have to take the currency hit, converting their currency into dollars, and then go buying oil that has gone up 3x in the last year, right? Think of, think of the depressive impact that has on an economy, right? The other thing, people are looking at these tech companies like they're bulletproof. Hey guys, when your currency is dropping between 30 to 50% against the US dollar, iPhones become a lot more expensive. Netflix subscriptions become a lot more expensive, Okay. I'm not telling you I know which direction this is going to go. Nobody does. What I know, what I've said on this show a million times, I nor anybody else can tell you exactly when a crash is coming. What we can do, though, is identify the, the, right, the scenarios. We can identify an environment in which a crash can occur. And what I was telling you is when I see a volatility index at 30, when I see a DXY above 100, and I see crude above 100, which... I don't believe, and I could be wrong, I don't think you've ever had the dollar index and crude both above 100 at the same time. Okay, when you hear that, that is a massive tax on the rest of the world. Right? So that impacts all the companies that sell our goods to the rest of the world. So, again, I, you know, I... (laughs) I really try... Guys, this is not about driving business to us. I mean, I think that you know, I, I think that our results speak for themselves, but it's also about educating and informing you guys and just saying, you know, what we've been saying for pretty much this entire year is you don't want to mess around with this. Now you got the NASDAQ down. What, what are we down on the year for the NASDAQ so far? Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Let's pull it up. 
Hold on. Dead air. This is bad radio, right? Let's see. Year to date. I think you're down 24, something like that. Um, anyway, yeah, worst, worst month, worst month for the, uh, for the NASDAQ since the financial crisis. So, and what have we been saying guys in a rising interest rate environment, the last place you want to be is in really expensive tech stocks and bonds. That's the story of this year, right? That's what's happening. Yeah. NASDAQ's down 22% year to date. So, um, it's getting frosty out there. And then, and then the other killer this morning, guys, and this is the biggest thing I want people to realize. They go, yeah, Zach, I heard you guys saying that, you know, this is just another dip to buy. Okay, let me – and look, you could be right. You could be right. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have the market cornered on the truth or I don't have the market cornered on, on what's going to happen in markets. But here, let me, let me just explain to you a big difference, okay? Inflation numbers got announced this morning. And you've got core CPI now, which is which is an indicator that really more that more closely tracks what real CPI is, what real inflation is. It's still way lower than it should be, but it really is focused on the things people have to buy. Um, core CPI is accelerating and was up more and is still climbing despite the recent uh, rate increase, despite economic weakness around the globe, despite higher oil prices and commodity prices. Core CPI is still rising. So what does that tell me? Well, every dip like this in the last 15 years was a dip to buy. Okay, but here's what's different right now. Core CPI wasn't at 5.4% rising. Inflation wasn't at 8.1% and the Fed was not in a hiking cycle, right? The guy that has been pouring drinks for the last 15 years just left the party, right? The DXY wasn't above 100 with oil above 100. Is a market rally, is a big rally and bounce back possible? Yeah, it's possible. I will tell you it would be the most spectacular rally I've ever witnessed in my life because I I don't really know how it could happen. Doesn't mean it can't. But what it does mean, what we know is when we look at all these indicators, it is not sunny outside, okay? And it's not just cloudy. It is pouring down rain. This is an environment where you must be careful. And you must exercise discretion and you must have risk management built into your portfolio because this can get ugly. And it, I mean, it already is. I had a guy in the other day. He was with Fisher Investments and I'm not knocking on them. I'll just tell it to you. He's down 400,000 on the year, 430,000, 440,000 after today. Something like that, 450,000 on the year off of a $2 million account. Um, people are like, it always comes back. Tell that to the Japanese guys, right? Their market peaked at 40,000. The Nikkei did in 1989. Today it finished at 25,000, right? And I'm not saying that's going to happen here. What I'm saying is risk management is necessary. You, so many of you are gambling your retirement money. Well, it's going to come back. You don't know that. You don't know that. And you're looking at a setup that we haven't looked at in this economy for 40 years, 50 years, really. And the last time we were looking at the setup, like I've said so many times before, we're going, you're going into the, uh, uh, you know, it's 1968, going into the inflation of the 70s and the early 80s. Stock market was down for a 12, 13 year period of time, like 15%. Bonds were getting smoked by 60. So I, I'll just be honest with you guys. I, 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 I have concerns that this is what we've been talking about, that this is the unwind that we've been talking about, and the Fed is in a brutally tough situation, right? If they come to the rescue and start pumping dough again, what's that going to do to inflation? It's going to push inflation higher, and inflation's going to topple the, the economy, right? If they raise rates too drastically, that will topple the economy. The, this is why we've been saying for all these years, the Fed is painting themselves into a corner. You don't wait to raise as long as they did, right? This is a problem that they have created. It may not be fun. It may not be good for stock markets, but this is why you should have been raising in 2013 and 2015 and 2018 and 2019. Because what you really needed to do you need to be, be able to cut rates now, but you can't do it because inflation's gotten out of hand. So this is what we were talking about, guys. And if this concerns you, if you're taking a pounding and you're listening about how our average client is still, you know, you know, slightly positive to right around zero on the year, their entire portfolio, our momentum portfolio is down about five to six, 
but it's sitting almost all in cash and it's just it want it's saying we don't want any part of this that's what the computer's saying value portfolio is still up one and a half 1.7 or something like that on the year um that's what your retirement portfolio should do in really nasty times uh, maybe it's down a little bit maybe but but it shouldn't be losing you meaningful amounts of money that guy that came in yesterday he just lost a vacation home he didn't really have one, but I'm saying 450 grand in three months. That's a vacation home, right? We're not playing around here, guys. Markets don't go up forever, okay? You need a risk management strategy. You need a portfolio that is going to still be able, you know, hey, people, well, risk management, I need to be more aggressive. Value portfolio is up 30% since last January. S&P's up eight, right? I mean, Momentum, momentum portfolio, even though it's struggling this year, right? It's still up about 8% over the last year, you know, a couple of years and it's, and it's leveled off, right? It's de-risked. So there's really no, it, it can't lose much more. It's sitting in 94% cash right now. And we had clients that were concerned a couple, two months ago when the momentum portfolio went to 90% cash. And I said, guys, just trust it. Let it do what it does. This thing was up 40 plus in, in 2019 and was only down 10 and percent in the COVID. Let it do what it does. It's pretty dang good right? But it's the pairing. It's all the parts. It's the bond replacement strategy. It's the value. It's the momentum. It's risk management. And if you don't have that, if you're sitting there getting smoke, guys, call us. It's not just about building our business. This is retirement. You get one. You don't get a redo. And like I said, I'm trying to be as ultra. I'm not just trying to drive business to us. I'm not just pitching you. I'm showing you over and over and over again, this is happening. And this is your retirement. You don't need to take these risks. So call us, 866-779-RISK. Again, 866-779-RISK. And guys, we show you our cards. I don't expect you to believe it, right? I could be lying. Well, if I was lying to you about returns, I think that the, the SEC would be all over us. I mean, we've been on the air for six years. But, you know, I, I've done whole shows on our worst investment choices ever. We're not perfect. Okay, but the one thing we are good at and we're designed to do is to get you through these times. Okay, and we'll just show you the performance. You can see it for yourself. It's an open book. You don't have to, well, if you want to know what our performance is, now you have to sign up for, you know, we're not doing any of that stuff. We just lay the cards out there, guys. Here's how we do it. Here's what's happened. Here's what the returns have been. And here's what it'll cost you. But what the promise I will make to you is this. We will show you a portfolio that will give you greater upside, not less, greater upside with way less risk and significantly less cost. That is a promise. So call us, 866-779-RISK and 866-779-RISK. That's about it, guys, for the show because I really want to spend a good amount of time with our interview with Brent Johnson. It's going to explain to you guys in greater details what is really going on here and what we need to be afraid of and how we are, we are pivoting. Okay, this is not the same. We are not in the same environment that we've been in for much of the last 10 years. Okay, it is changing. And you can see that with commodity costs, inflation, and the dollar index. Okay, and rates. This is a different, what worked the last 10 years ain't going to work now. So listen to this interview. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after the break. Give us a call, 866-779-RISK. Stay for the interview with Brent Johnson and enjoy it. And this is another important one that I'd encourage you to mail around to your friends. People need to understand what's going on and how this environment has changed. So stick with us through the break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. This is Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham. Listen to Zach discuss key investment strategies across several asset classes, not just stocks and bonds. Get your free copy of Zach's new booklet, Common Sense Investing. Go to knowyourriskradio.com. Hey, it's Story Monson with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital and host of Know Your Risk Radio. Zach, what's the number one concern with people's investments right now? Without a doubt, Dory, it's inflation, and it's here. With all this money printing and with still 0% interest rates, inflation will very likely rise, and when inflation rises, bonds get smoked. We've been telling people for six years, if you're using bonds in the old-school 60-40 mix as the safe portion of your portfolio, you're taking a risk in today's inflationary environment. Well, what should our listeners do? If you're worried about inflation, we believe that you should consider getting out of bonds and get educated with Bulwark's bond 
replacement strategy. We teach you exactly how to do it in our free booklet, Common Sense Investing. Learn how to protect your portfolio against loss, but still seek to grow your assets. Call Zach now for your free copy of Common Sense Investing, 866-779-RISK, or go to knowyourriskradio.com. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital Management. And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And this is, uh, again, my favorite segment of the show. And this one is overdue. Um, and, And what's funny is we've sort of been setting up for this interview for probably about three, four years maybe. Um, and, uh, so without further ado, I could not think of a better person to have on today. We're going to, we're, we're not going to be, he's here. We are joined by Brent Johnson of Santiago Capital. Brent, it's been a while, man. How are things? Oh, things are good, man. Thanks for having me. Always, uh, enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> so trying to figure out a guest we had on the show, <laughs> we wanted to have on the show for this week. There, there are a couple interesting things happening, Brent, um, I, I noticed some quote unquote impossible things that have occurred lately, which is I, I'm looking I'm looking across my screen. I see a dollar index at 103, you know, was pushing 104, essentially a 20 year high. Uh, at the same time, commodities are rallying, and bo- and bond yields are going up, and gold's pushing 2,000. Brent, Brent, this is impossible. Who could have possibly seen this coming? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, these things aren't allowed to happen this way, apparently. At least at least that's what I've been kind of told repeatedly. And, you know, yet here we are. Um, You know, as you and I have have spoken on several occasions now and listen, I'm the first, you know, I'm I'm the first to hold up my hand and say, listen, guys, I was pretty early on this. And, you know, on Wall Street, when you're early, you're wrong. So if if people, you know, in their hearts and minds need me to say that I was wrong, I, I don't mind doing that. But I kind of think we're here now. Right. I think we're we're at this place where. You know, despite all the stimulus, despite all the bailouts, despite the helicopter money, despite QE one, two, three, and however many other you know forms of it it has taken, the dollar's at a twenty-year high, and uh, you know this is kind of, kind of uh, I don't know if vindication is the right word, but it, but it at least reflects what I've been thinking is going to happen, um, because as bad as I think the dollar is, I just think every currency is worth worse. Um, and so we, we have we have a situation where um, and even equity market and you know equity markets are looking kind of ugly right now. But even though they're looking ugly, they're still kind of within well not technology tech tech tech's really taking a hit. But you know in general the Dow you know a, a week ago the Dow was in one or within you know a couple percent of its all time high. Um, and it, it's yeah I think what is it off now five to ten percent maybe. So it's still. Hasn't been a disaster in equities yet, um, no. but yet you know. So it, it just you know it, it, we're in this unique uh, unique market environment, and, and I'm always one who push back when when people say it's different this time. I actually don't think it's different this time, but it, we're definitely going to see uh, things that we haven't seen for a very long time. You know, I think in these markets. And I want to get into some specific things here, um, but what do you think? Can you give us a short summation? So, so for those that haven't heard an interview with you and Brent or with me and Brent before, I think Brent, we've probably had you on, you know, six to eight times, something like that, over the last four years or so. Um, like yeah, it can for the for the new listeners because we've we've spread out into different markets. So I know we've got new listeners that that haven't heard the show before and certainly haven't heard you talk. Um, for a little background, I heard a, an interview that Brent did. This was probably back in 2015, Brent, on Real Vision, the first video That's interview true. you did. Well, yeah, but I mean, the first time I ever did Real Vision was probably back in 2015. That's probably right. Okay, okay, because I saw the first interview you did on there, and that is where you started talking about the dollar milkshake theory. And can you give our listeners? Well, that's, so that's okay. So that that's a little bit incorrect there. So okay, okay. I started talking. Um, I started talking on Real Vision um, back in kind of the mid 2000s, probably around the 2015 time frame. And I would often talk about gold, and you know, and I'm a huge believer that everybody should have gold, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe a couple of years after that, you know, in the 2016, 2017 timeframe, I started talking about how even though I was a huge believer in gold, and I thought everybody should own gold in their portfolio, that I actually thought the dollar was going to get stronger, right? But it wasn't until 2018 
when I first mentioned, and, and again, this wasn't something that I just had this dream overnight and all of a sudden it just popped into my head, mm-hmm. right? But through all that work uh, that I'd done, even before I ever went on Real Vision, and then, you know, the, 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 the two years, two or three years since I first went on there, you know, I just kind of kept developing this thesis. And, you know, the more research I did, the more I thought things were going to play out in a certain way. And, you know, it wasn't until 2018, though, that I kind of I put it all together into kind of one framework for how I saw, you know, the next few years playing out. And that's when I uh, that's when I talked about uh, the milkshake theory, for lack of a better word. And, you know, I can't remember if you and I spoke before I ever coined that term or right around, but... But, you know, it was kind of in that time frame when I kind of started developing this thesis. You, We spoke before you actually mentioned the dollar milkshake because I remember okay. I went through – I think you and I have talked about this on the show before. There were similar uh, paths to enlightenment, if you will, that, yeah, right, right. that we were on because um, I was all bulled up on gold and commodities coming out of the financial crisis. And really up until yeah. the end of 2011, you know, you look like a genius. Um, and then that turned around sharply. And, yeah. you know, kept thinking it was a dip to buy and it just wasn't, yeah. it was a dip that kept yeah. dipping. And that yeah. just, that, that sent me really down a path of reeducation going, what am I missing about this? And I, I, I came probably two and a half years of soul searching, of researching, of reading and trying to figure out what I had missed. Where did I get it wrong? And I came to this crazy conclusion that I thought when this cycle was coming to an end, that you would see a rally with the gold and the dollar and possibly more commodities as well because you know in a world of infinite capital the ultimate safeguards were gold and the dollar and sure um and then i was really afraid to say anything to anybody about it because i felt like that was insane you know mm-hmm. and i knew i knew i knew how it how, is it's crazy it's right. crazy to think those things <laughs> it, it well because it flies in the face of conventional wisdom and so while I'm sitting there being all timid, afraid to mention it to anybody, I pull up Real Vision, and you're saying the same thing in, in even more articulate and detailed terms on Real Vision, and I'm sitting there going, okay, at least I'm not the only guy, and this guy's even done more work on it. I got to get him on the show. Um, and, and watching this play out, man, it has just been fascinating. What, can you get into a little bit, so just give us the quick synopsis, like I was saying, of what that dollar milkshake theory is for our new listeners that haven't heard it before. Sure. You don't have to deep dive on it. You can no, just kind of give the... Well, so, 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 so I'll give the overview, and then I'll, I'll point out that the, the dollar going higher, it, a lot of people think that the milkshake theory is just the dollar going higher. That's not necessarily the case. That's the driver of everything, but it, but it's what the dollar going higher over time does to all the other asset classes. That is the real theory, and 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 I'll I'm, I'm going to come back to this, but I think it's important to understand this. I think when you actually understand what the milkshake theory says to do, you'll see that the milkshake theory has actually been playing out for several years now. It's mm-hmm. just that the, the 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 one signal that everybody equates with with it, which is a high dollar. Is, is just now starting to, to, to happen again. So, okay, so the theory has been that at some point, debt will matter. <laughs> now, it hasn't, right? <laughs> For years and years and years, debt hasn't mattered. And, you know, monetary authorities and central bankers and even families and companies just kick the can down the road. They borrow more money. They re-leverage up and they just go on about their business, right? And that has gone on longer than I thought it would. But... The theory, again, is that we're coming to the end of this grand super debt cycle, for lack of a better word. And when debt matters again, we are going, it is going to cause a currency and sovereign debt crisis. And so the, so the milkshake theory is how I believe a currency and sovereign debt crisis plays out. Um, and so my thesis is that despite all of its problems, despite the runaway spending and fiscal profligacy by governments, despite the crazy central bankers at the Fed, despite the helicopter money and the MMT programs, et cetera, et cetera, despite all of that, that because it has all these negative factors, but because it also has all these positive attributes going for it as a result of being the global reserve currency, that it will actually rise 
versus all of its peers. And along the way, it will cause, even though I think in general, we are going to be in an inflationary environment as governments around the world you know, provide liquidity, provide stimulus, do QE, however you want to describe it. They're going to mix up all, they're going to inject the world with liquidity. I think the U.S. and the U.S. dollar and the U.S. capital markets is going to suck up all that liquidity. And it's going to push uh, the dollar higher than many people think. And it would ultimately push U.S. asset prices higher relative to the rest of the world. In other words, we, the U.S. would be capturing the liquidity. The rest of the world would be starved of liquidity. And as a result, on a relative basis, the place you want to be is in U.S. assets and in U.S. dollars. And along the way, you could get these deflationary shocks because based on the way the monetary system is designed, the system is not designed for it to have a strong dollar relative to its peers. So while you can certainly believe in the inflationary endgame, you have to understand that it's always going to be possible that there would be deflationary shocks along the way. So that's kind of the milkshake theory. And what, what we've seen you know, since 2008 is you know, they, you know, the, the, at, in the, at the end of 2008, the dollar index, which is a way of measuring the dollar versus its peers, uh, was like in the low 70s or high 70s. And you know, they've done all these programs, all these stimulus programs. They printed all this money. They've handed out stimulus. They've dropped money from helicopters. Today, the dollar index is at 103. So it's 25% higher than it was 12 years ago despite all the bailouts and all the stuff since then. So, you know, I think what people got to understand is that it's not just the U.S. that is in this situation. And all the other governments of the world, all the other countries, all the other monetary authorities have made the same mistakes. They're in the same position. And they also have to do all those things. The difference is that all those other countries and all those other currencies don't have the same level of demand that the dollar does. So if everybody's increasing supply but only one country has global demand, that one country, currency, should perform better than all the others. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen. Uh, we're seeing the euro at a near uh, you know, 20 year low. Uh, we're seeing the yen at a 20 year low and it's now broken through 40 year support. Um, we see a number of smaller regional currencies around the world crashing, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, I think we're getting into this period where debt is going to matter again. And, and when that happens, I think all of this stuff is going to get exacerbated. The, the other thing I'd say is I'd point out why I said, you know, the milkshake theory is already kind of playing out. If you look at capital flows and what asset prices have done since March 2020, I'm just, I'm just going to cherry pick that day because everybody's familiar with the kind of the carnage that went on in the first quarter of 2020. But since that time, um, you know, if you look at all the cap, there's so much capital has left other parts of the world and flowed into the United States. And U.S. equities have dramatically outperformed equities in the other parts of the world. In other words, if you were to, if you were to measure global equity valuation increases over the last two years and you were to attribute um, what percent went to each region, far and away the biggest attribution, and I, my guess is it would be 70 or 80 percent of that growth, would just come from the U.S. US markets. Um, and, and to me, that is evidence that the rest of the world is seeking the relative safety of U.S. dollars and U.S. markets. Now, that does not mean that you know, it's going to be a straight line higher and that there's no risk involved and that you can just buy equities and sit back and not think about it. That, that's not my point. But my point is that capital allocators, big institutional capital, does not go and sit in cash. You know, now, individuals can choose to do that, or individuals can choose to put 100% of their portfolio in gold if they choose to do that. But big institutional capital does not have that option. And, they, and so they are always going to look to put that capital into some assets somewhere in the world. And I think when those big decisions are made by those big capital allocators, they are going to continue to allocate to the United States to the detriment of the rest of the world. So that was a very long, rambling explanation, but that's what it is. That was, that was actually pretty concise. It's not a very small topic, right? <laughs> um, now, kind of switching gears a little bit, because I – and you and you can tell me if there's a better example or if, if there's a better analog that you'd prefer to look at. But 
Um, when you want to know the type of devastating impacts that what you were talking about, right, a surging dollar along with rising commodities and, 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 and rising prices of U.S. assets, if you want to know what kind of havoc that this can wreak, I, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of see Japan as, as, a, as a prime example of that right now. Uh, would you agree? They're one good example of that, yeah. Okay. Um, there's, there's a little bit of difference with Japan because even though Japan, you know, is very much a homogenous you know, native market, it is also one of the largest economies in the world. And there is probably, next to the dollar and the euro, there would be more global demand for yen than there would be for just about any other currency. Um, so it's not quite the same, but it is similar. What, what kind of, Brent, explain to the people at home, you know, that are listening, just so they understand, what kind of impact does, you know, you look at the, the beating that the yen has taken recently, what is it, something like 28 to 30% off uh, yeah. in relationship to the dollar, and yeah. in addition, you've got crude at 106. What, what kind of, what kind of uh, burden does that, does that put on their economy? What kind of impact is that going to have on, on their GDP, for instance? Well, so I'm going to answer the question, and, I, and I'll answer it with respect to Japan, but I'm also going to answer it with respect to the whole world, because it's not just a U.S.-Japan thing here. Um, when you're talking about oil being over $100, the yen losing value versus the dollar, and the dollar actually, you know, okay, oil being over $100 indicates that the dollar is losing value versus oil. Right. Yeah. Then you consider that the yen is dramatically losing value versus the dollar, which means the yen is losing even more value versus oil than the dollar is losing versus oil. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you consider that Japan has tremendous amount of debt, right? Uh, an incredible amount of debt. They've had it for years and they've been in this deflationary environment because of all this debt. It's stifled their growth. So now they have... And now overall global growth is kind of slowing, right? So you've got slowing growth, and now your currency loses losing value, and they're a commodity importer. You know What led to World War II, many people don't remember, is that Japan had to import all their oil, and the price of oil was really high due to embargoes that, that the U.S. and some other people had put on them. That led to them to, to start World War II. Well, now you've got a scenario again where they have a tremendous amount of debt, a lot of the revenue that they do generate has to go to service the debt. The top line is no longer growing, but now you've got input prices, specifically oil, rising. And not just rising versus the yen, but rising versus the dollar. This is the worst of all worlds, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> now, it's, it's bad for Japan, but it's even worse for places like Turkey, who mm -hmm. have even less demand for their currency. And places like China, who have even less demand for their currency. Um, because when your top line revenue is falling and your bottom line costs are rising, you're getting squeezed from both sides. And the way that countries typically deal with a downturn is they print money, for lack of a better word, or they provide stimulus or they do, you know, they do yield caps where they hold interest rates down in order to be able to service the debt easier. But every time they do that, it actually becomes a vicious cycle where it makes their currency even less valuable versus the dollar. And it actually stimulates the problem that they're trying to solve. Mm. And so when you, this, this is how hyperinflation occurs. Now, when I say hyperinflation, I'm not talking about hyperinflation in the dollar. We are not going to see hyperinflation in the dollar despite all the rumors and the theories and the you know, newsletters and the podcasters who, you know, say that the imminent demise of the dollar is right around the corner. That's not going to happen with the global reserve currency before it happens to these peripheral currencies. And the reason is because demand. There's still, despite hating it, despite not liking it, there's still global demand for the dollar. There is not global demand for the Turkish lira. There is not global demand for the Chinese yuan. There's not global demand for Argentinian pesos, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so when these countries get into this situation, they start printing their currency um, to try to get out of it, and it creates this vicious feedback loop. And this, the, the way hyperinflation happens 
is when no matter how much money you print, there's still no demand for it. And in fact, the more you print, the less people want it. And so you know, that this is, and not only that, but typically, you know, when this is when social problems start to happen. Right. You look back at any revolution in history, it typically happens during high levels of inflation or or stagnant or a combination of stagflation, right? Where you've got stagnant economic growth and rising input costs. When people are hungry and cold, they're more likely to strike out at their leaders than when they're comfortable and warm. That's just it just makes sense, right? Yep. If you're comfortable and happy and sitting on your couch eating a pizza watching a big screen TV, you know, life's pretty good, right? <laughs> but if yep. but if you're hungry and your power doesn't work because you can't afford it and the, the the infrastructure in your country is falling apart because the government's managed it poorly and your wife is mad at you because you can't bring enough <laughs> money home in order to put shoes on the kids that's when people lose their minds right and yeah. so I, i'm t- i'm trying i'm kind of being funny but i'm being completely serious as well you know you look back to 10 years ago I think it was about 10 years. I think it was 2012, 2013 time frame. All across Northern Africa and the Middle East, you had this Arab Spring where these autocratic governments saw their people kind of rise up and protest against their decades-long you know, dic- dictatorial rule. And the reason that it happened was essentially energy and food prices were out of control. And, you know, that that's what happens. I mean, that is literally what happens, you know, when, when people are at their wit's end, they look for somebody to blame and they typically blame the government. So now you've got these economic problems now, um, you know, combined with social problems. And how do governments typically try to deal with social problems? Well, they try to give them money, right? They try to bribe the public with, I promise I'm going to give you this and I promise I'm going to do that. They either make promises or they, you know, they use bullets right? Right. <laughs> to, to, to get people back in line, right? And so if they use money to get them back in line, well, they're creating even more inflation. And if they use bullets to get it back in line, well, that's not a good situation either. But, um, but that, that's, that's how these big, big problems fester, and this is how they end up erupting. And then it happens in one place, and then the other people, you know, on the, in the town next door or the state next door or the country next door say, well, well crap, if, if those guys are pushing back, we're going to push back too. We don't have it any better than they do, and it, it becomes contagious, right? It's, it's like a virus that starts to spread, and, you know, we all know what a virus can do. You know, maybe three years ago we didn't know, but now we do, right? Yeah. There's probably there's probably no greater fear, no very great, no but no greater virus on the planet than fear. Fear fear spreads about as quickly as anything, and so um, I just kind of feel like that's the situation we're in now. We were, you know, it's not to say that the, this can't get kicked down the road again. It's not to say that you know everything's going to blow up tomorrow. But but my point is, is we kind of have the perfect storm because of every all the steps that were taken with COVID. And the reactions to COVID, um, you know, they basically shut down the global economy. They completely broke the supply chain. And then on top of that, now we have geopolitical concerns and tensions, which are breaking supply chains even further. And so, you know, but they provided all this stimulus. And so now we've had these inflationary pressures that haven't been seen in 20, 30, 40 years. And it's kind of the perfect storm for, for what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, what... When you're looking out, um, when you're looking at the world today, and you see, you know, it's really hard to compare. But, but, a, I was going to ask you, what, what do you think the closest analog, if there is one, the closest example of something like this that we've gone gone through before? And then also, one of the things that I think is shifting. And I mean, obviously it is because the Fed has completely changed their tune. I think right now that they're a lot, in my opinion, I think it's a lot more heavy on the job owning. And I, I just, I, you know, my whole thing is, you know, prove it to me, right? Show me that you're actually willing mm-hmm. to do what it takes. Having said that, I wake up this morning and I see that core CPI print. It seems to me, Brent, that their hands are tied. It, it, it seems to me like the guy that's been pouring the drinks for the last 15 years just left the party. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this has been kind of a relatively 
what's the right way to say this, a relatively controversial topic over the last couple of years. Uh, inflation. Is inflation for real? Is inflation not for real? Do we have inflation? Do we have inflation? Is inflation transitory? Et cetera, et cetera, right? And my point has always been that can we get inflation? Sure, we can. Um, and I, I'm the first person to say, you know, look now, we're certainly seeing the inflationary pressures, right? Mm-hmm. The question then becomes, is it transitory or was it transitory or, or is there anything that can be done to get it lower again? And, you know, the, the, the bottom line is, is that when you get supply shocks combined with stimulus, you are going to get inflationary pressures. And that's exactly what we've had. The question is, what comes next? And I, to be honest, I don't know. I, I could make a really good argument either way. But what I would say is that because supply chains have been so disrupted, we're not... All right, guys. Due to time constraints, we got to cut things off right there. But I think this is, I keep saying it, guys. It's just a really important period of time. Obviously, a lot of crazy stuff going on. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to wear it out and pretend like every single interview we do is the most important. But if you want to understand what's happening in markets right now and you want to understand what the real threats are and what the problems are and why markets are reacting this way and all that kind of stuff, this interview, I think, is going to be the most illuminating. I think it's going to really explain it in 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 the best terms. Um, you're not going to hear this anywhere, anywhere else, um, maybe a couple other places, but just uh, people in my opinion are not nearly as focused on the right things. Okay. And right now I think that what you, you know, this is all about currencies. So this is another one of those episodes where a, if you liked the first half of it, I would encourage you to keep listening. You can go to know your risk radio podcast you can subscribe, you can download, listen to the rest of the, uh, the, uh, interview. And uh, again, if you want to know what's happening, this is going to lay it out. It's going to tell you about it, and the dollar has a big part to do with what's happening right now. You're pushing 40-year highs. So I think this is very important. Excuse me, 20-year highs in the dollar. Um, it's very important. Download, subscribe, listen to the rest of the interview. I think you'll enjoy it. hope you enjoyed as much as I did doing it. And uh, as always, we'll have another one teed up for next week. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe to knowyourriskradio.com. Thanks for listening to Know Your Risk Radio with Zach Abraham, Chief Investment Officer at Bulwark Capital. Whether it's preservation of capital or an aggressive growth strategy, every investor needs a clearly defined risk profile. Schedule your free risk review with Zach Abraham now at knowyourriskradio.com. Zach will be back with more Know Your Risk Radio next Saturday at noon on 97.3 Cairo FM and AM 770 KTTH. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.